The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Well, let's go back to the book of Acts this morning for our message. I haven't forgotten about the pastoral prayer. We will do that at the end. Acts chapter 6, and we're diving back into the story of Acts. And just to kind of bring us up to speed with what's going on and to tie into our message, lead into it, I'm just going to give you a recap very quickly of what's happened so far in the story of Acts. In chapter 1, Jesus has prepared his disciples for their spirit-filled witness. In chapter 2, the Spirit uh, comes, the twelve witness to Christ, and the church grows by 3,000. In chapter 3, a lame man is healed. Peter and John bear witness to Jesus as God's servant, the Holy One, and the author of life. And then in chapter 4, Peter and John witness is opposed They're arrested, they're imprisoned, they face the first trial by the Sanhedrin, after which they're warned and then released. And then in chapter 5, opposition comes, but this time from within the church. Ananias and Sapphira sell property, they agree together to lie, they're caught, they're judged, both of them die one after the other, and once again, at the end of that, the church is still growing. Again, the apostles are arrested, they're freed by the angel, they're re-arrested, and they face their second trial in in front of the Sanhedrin, after which they're beaten and released. And then in chapter 6, opposition comes again from within, as the Greek Hellenistic widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food, and the apostles risk being overworked, But using wisdom, it prevails, and seven servants are appointed, and the word of God spreads, and the church grows. And that kind of wraps up, at verse 7, the first major section of the book of Acts. And to kind of summarize it, we would say this, Christ has ascended, the Spirit has come, witness has been made in Jerusalem, and the church has grown from about 120 to at least 5,000 And opposition has begun. Opposition has been going on since the very beginning. In chapter 6 to 8, from verse 8 onwards, the opposition from the Hellenistic Jews happens. Stephen is arrested, false charges are made, and he's presented to the Sanhedrin. And then in chapter 7, Stephen faces the third trial that's recorded by the Sanhedrin. He makes a very courageous witness and defense of the gospel. At the close of that, as they're rushing at him with anger, he sees the exalted Jesus. Heaven is open and he's able to see it. And he becomes the first martyred witness for Christ. It is interesting that there's three trials by the Sanhedrin. At the close of the first one, there's warning. At the close of the second one, there's a beating. At the close of the third one, there is death. And that point becomes kind of a decisive moment when the church and Judaism kind of break apart. No longer are they sort of a sect of Judaism. It's now something completely different. In chapter 8, 
The persecution under Saul rises and the church is scattered into Judea and Samaria. And that's kind of the second part of what Jesus said. He said, you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And that happens from chapter 1 to chapter 6. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses in Samaria. And that happens from chapter 6 through to chapter uh, 12, the end of chapter 12, I believe. So persecution is arising. And the reality is that messengers of God's truth will always be met with opposition. It goes back to the Old Testament. Godly prophets were opposed. Moses was opposed by Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and others. Elijah was opposed by the prophets of Baal and Jezebel. Jeremiah was opposed by... Um, he was beaten and he was dropped in a muddy cistern. The false prophets, the schools of the prophets opposed him. And that's where we see him at the end. He goes off to Egypt, I believe. And then the New Testament, the godly messengers and witness are also opposed. John the Baptist was opposed by Herod. Jesus was opposed by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes, and the Herodians. The apostles were opposed from outside and inside the church. In all of this, we see Jesus' words, Jesus' promise being fulfilled, that we would be opposed. He says in John 15 and verse 20, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we in our day and age are certainly experiencing opposition by ungodly leaders and government. Ungodly laws are being introduced and passed into our, into our culture, our nation. Same-sex marriage laws and conversion therapy laws. Now there's attempts by the government to remove the Bible from Parliament and to disallow Christian schools to select Christian-only staff and teachers. That's opposition. It's opposition for each of us from friends and family members, from work colleagues. There's opposition from schools and university and the news media and society in general. And the truth is, Christianity will always face opposition. And the other part of that is that passive opposition will soon give way to physically violent opposition. Notice that progression with the trials in the Sanhedrin going from warning to beating and then to death. So the question is, not will we face it, the question is, how will we, how should we respond to such opposition? What does the book of Acts teach us about responding to opposition? Well, in chapters 6 and 7, Stephen illustrates for us a godly, Christ-like response to opposition. In first of all, in chapter 6, verses 3 to 10, it requires a godly, Christ-like character. In verses 11 to 7 and verse 53, it requires a courageous witness. In verse, chapter 7 and verse 55 and 56, it requires a heavenly perspective. And fourthly, it requires a forgiving heart and spirit. And we're going to look at just the first one, and the other three we'll look at next week as a group. All of those are exemplified in the life and ministry of Stephen. And chapter 6 introduces us to Stephen in the context of an internal opposition. The Hellenistic widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
And seven servants, including Stephen, are selected and appointed to the task. I want you to notice the qualifications for those servants. There was godly men required for practical service. In verse 3, we can see three things. A good reputation. Now, the interesting thing with that is, and I checked with one of my uh, Greek scholar friends this week, and he explained, yeah, it's true. The word there for reputation is the root word matir, where we get our word martyr, our word witness from. And literally what it means is they have received a good witness as to their character. Secondly, they were to be full of the Spirit. And thirdly, full of wisdom. And Stephen and Philip are the first two mentioned. It's interesting because Stephen becomes the first martyred preacher and Philip becomes the first evangelist preacher. And although they're selected and appointed to practical service, both are remembered and recorded in Scripture for their witness to and defense of the gospel. Luke's description of Stephen is that of a Christ-like man. But what I love about it, I love about all the characters in Scripture, except the Lord Jesus, is they're all ordinary men. And one of the dangers is, as we read our Bibles is to start to see them as something especially high and lifted up and something completely removed from us. But the reality is, they were ordinary men just like you and I. In fact, I think James describes Elijah as an ordinary man. He was somebody just like us. And so it's an encouragement to our hearts as we read these stories to emulate their faith and their godliness, not to be like Stephen, but that we might be like Christ, just as Stephen was like Christ. So brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we respond to opposition that is here and increasing? What is our most unassailable asset in responding to opposition? And it is a godly, Christ-like character. But that godly character does not develop overnight. It's the result of years of faithful growth being transformed from the inside out, from an ungodly sinner to a godly saint. It begins at the moment of conversion and continues throughout life till the very end. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see the end result of Stephen's life transformed by the gospel and growing in godliness. Stephen was like his Savior and Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is indeed a great call on us to develop that godly character. It requires our involvement, our discipline, and our work in cooperation with the Spirit of God that's working within I didn't put these two references in your notes, I'm sorry, but there's two things that we should remember as we go through this. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, the Bible says that godliness is profitable for all things. He says bodily exercise is profitable for some things, but godliness is profitable for all things. And the second reference, not in your notes, I'm sorry, is 2 Timothy 3.12. The promise is that godliness will bring persecution. But the profit far outweighs the cost. I believe one of the uh, English Reformation martyrs said that it was far better to spend one hour in the flames at the stake than to spend all of eternity in hell. So first of all, godly Christ-like character requires being full of the Spirit. Notice verse 5. Stephen is personally described as full of the Spirit. 
And that is indeed evidence of Christ-likeness. There can be no Christ-like witness without being full of the Spirit. Jesus himself was full of the Spirit. In Luke 4, verse 1, we read that Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, returned from Jordan. And the same verse, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. In Acts 16 and verse 7, in Philippians 1.19, the Scriptures actually give the Holy Spirit the name, the Spirit of Christ. So, being full of, of the Spirit is part of being Christ-like. It is indeed. Sorry, the Spirit of God in Christ was poured out at Pentecost. And as most of us will know, in Ephesians 1.13, we're filled and sealed with the Spirit once at the moment of our belief and our conversion. The Spirit indwells, indwells and seals us. He seeks to convict us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Jesus gave this explanation of the work of the Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. You can work your way through and pick all these things up. The Spirit seals us. He convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. He seeks to help us, to lead us, to guide us into truth. He seeks to provide ministry gifts that are suitable to the moment and to empower us for both Christian life and ministry. And just as we are not to be drunk with wine, but we are to be under the control of the Holy Spirit... We're to be under the control of the Spirit of God living within us. And that requires several things. Now, brothers and sisters, as I'm going through this, I know we've talked about these things before, but for my own heart, and I hope for yours too, they're worth being repeated and reminded of. First of all, how is it? How is it that we're filled with the Spirit? Well, we know we fill with the Spirit when we're saved, but how does that filling Increase. How does the influence of the Spirit of God increase in our lives? And first of all, it's prayer. In Luke 11 and verse 13, Jesus said, How much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask Him? So we ask in prayer. One of the things on your prayer list, I put it there and I often mention it in prayer, is the increase of the Spirit of God's influence in all of our lives that we might have a white hot bright, shining testimony for God. Secondly, it is submission to His leading, His teaching and His conviction in our lives. Crying out to God for the Spirit's increased influence and then rejecting His leading and convicting is double-minded and it's unstable. It will only grieve Him and quite possibly bring us into discipline. So we pray and we submit to His leading. And thirdly, there is a desire for more of the revelation of Christ in the Word of God. We want to learn more of Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ in us. And as we spend time in the Scriptures, working through them, mining them, reading, studying, meditating on Scripture, our desire is not just to cover the book in however long you're choosing to read through. It's to get into the book, that the book might get into us, that we might learn who Christ is, to have more of Christ, to allow the Spirit of God within us to teach us about Christ and about ourselves, for sure, as we read and study Scripture. So then, why is being full of the Spirit so necessary to face opposition? 
Why can't we just face opposition with the, the sealing of the Spirit we receive at conversion and not much more? Well, consider Jesus' words and behavior when he faced opposition. And you know, stop and think about different altercations you get into. Uh, maybe with your sister. That's always a good way for me to think about it. With brothers and sisters are always bickering and, and, and fighting now and again. And so you think about how you behave when you get into an altercation with your sister. You consider how you behave when you get into an altercation with neighbors or somebody cuts you off on your reaction. And what we desire so much more than the reaction we see so often is a spirit-filled, godly reaction. How are we going to respond to opposition? Consider Jesus' words and behavior, and you'll see why we need that filling of the Spirit as we face opposition. He answered his questioners kindly, patiently, and without condescension. You read through the Gospels and look at time and time again. They come with questions. They come to try and trip him up and trap him. And he answers kindly and gently. Sometimes his words are strong. But there's never a sense of vindictiveness as he answers. He was patient as they blasphemed him with their words. He submitted to them even to suffering of torture and death. He was faithfully obedient to God the Father, never wavering. His answers to Pilate were respectful yet truthful. He prayed for his tortures and executioners to be forgiven. Brother and sister in Christ, as you read the story of Stephen, you read the story of Christ, and you see both of them sought the forgiveness of their torturers. Just stop for a moment and think. There he is, thrown to the ground, and they're standing over him with gigantic rocks, as big as they can lift, and they're going to hurl them down on his body. How long stoning took or takes, I have no idea. But as those stones came crashing down, he was crying out to God that it would not be held to their account what they were doing. That requires the Spirit of God in us. No other way. Consider uh, Stephen's godly, Christ-like response to his opposition. His answers displayed the wisdom of God and a powerful spirit powerful spirit. He submitted to their seizing and dragging him to the Sanhedrin. He was kind in heart, seeking forgiveness from his executioners. In Christ and Stephen, there was love for their enemies. There was a joy even in enduring suffering. There was compassion for their executioners. There was a peace within despite facing their deaths. There was self-control. They neither reviled or railed or threatened. There was in each a tremendous godly response that could only have come from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why His fullness within is so necessary for us to face opposition. You know, you've got to stop and ask also this. What's our goal? Why is it we want to be filled with the Spirit? If it's just to face opposition, that's great, but it's not all of it. There's something so much better. There's a so much greater goal that we can hold in hand as we face opposition with Christ-like, godly character. And that's this, to glorify God in our life and witness. Godliness is profitable for all things. It isn't just for when we face opposition. It's profitable for the whole of our lives. 
Godliness in life glorifies God. Godliness in the face of opposition glorifies God. Christ and Stephen's spirit-filled response glorified God. And you say, how is it possible that we can be filled with the Spirit and have that feeling of the Holy Spirit? Christ's death and resurrection and ascension purchased the filling with His Spirit. We remember when He told His disciples, it's to your benefit that I go and I will send the Spirit. You will have the Spirit of Me in you all through this life as you make a testimony. The only way that that could happen is because Jesus suffered and died and rose again. We, ha- we have the filling of the Spirit because of Christ's death and resurrection. So what is the means to that filling? And the simple answer is faith in God and obedience to the Word. Prayer is prayed in faith. Studying and reading and understanding the Scriptures is done in obedience and in faith. Crying out to God for the increase of the Spirit and submission to God and His submission to the leading of the Spirit to obey God is only, only possible by faith and obedience to God. And the rest of these characteristics, we're only going to look at two more today. We'll look at the rest next week. Are all a flow out, all of an overflow of being filled with the Spirit are these other things. And secondly, godly, Christ-like character requires an increasing faith in God. Notice in verse 5, the first characteristic of Stephen is full of faith. Christ himself was full of faith, trusting God. We said it before, 1 Peter 2, verse 23. Christ entrusted himself to one who judges justly. Faith is God's gift to us, which we then exercise in God. I was trying to think of an illustration that could kind of display it. It's kind of like when you buy your, your son a box of crayons when he's really small. He takes that box of crayons and he draws a picture for you and he gives it to you as a response to your gift to him. God gives us the faith by which we believe in God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is God's gift, which we then exercise in Him. The Bible says in Romans 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In Romans 4, verses 20 and 21, we read there that faith is the conviction that God is able to keep His promises. In Hebrews 11, and verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. So how that all works is we hear the truth of Scripture regarding Christ. We intellectually agree with that truth. The Spirit convinces us, convinces us within of its truth. The Spirit opens our hearts and minds to hear and understand the truth. And being convinced, we commit ourselves entirely to God. So faith is being so convinced of God's ability to keep His promises that we have an assurance, a conviction deep within both our heart and our mind that what God has promised is already ours. And there's also cases in Scripture in which some are given an extra measure of faith. 
The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9, For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, and then verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. Paul is speaking of the faith beyond saving faith. And it's very easy to see that Stephen is full of faith and had that extra measure of faith given to him. But, whether or not we have that extra gift of faith, we must all be growing in our faith as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we ask the question, how can faith be increased? Well, first of all, we recognize that we are indeed weak in faith. One of the first things, there's a problem. Admit it. We recognize before God that we need our faith to be increased. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, the man said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. There was an element of faith there. He understood, he believed that Jesus could do this, but there was also a desire for that faith to grow, to increase. And so secondly... We pray and we ask our God to increase our faith so we can face opposition. In Luke 17 and verse 5, the disciples asked Christ to increase their faith. And that's the prayer that God delights to answer. And one of the ways God answers it is by placing us in situations that need more faith We cry out to God, and He gives us more faith. He puts us in a deeper situation. We cry out to God, He gives us more faith. So, there is the asking for faith. There's a recognition that we are weak in faith, and it needs to be increased. And thirdly, there's an obeying what God has already given you and I to do. Our obedience is always in faith for God to provide. God calls us to do something. That you say, that's beyond my ability. I can't do that. That's outside of my reach. And as He calls us to do it, He imparts the strength to do it. And He also gives us the faith to exercise in Him to do what He's called us to do. The last thing is maybe not an obvious one, but I think it's definitely worth repeating. Just as faith comes through hearing and hearing by the Word of God, so also... Faith increases as we read and study and pray Scripture into life. The greater God is to us, the more our faith grows and increases. I've said it before, and I know others have said it too. One of the biggest problems facing us as modern Christians, especially in a Western affluent society, is there's so much stuff that crowds out our view of God that God is increasingly too small for us. We need a bigger view of faith. We need a bigger view of God that our faith may increase. It's like, you see, I'm thinking about weightlifting, right? You go into the gym and there's a stack of weights on that machine, and you look around to make sure nobody's watching, and then you put your little key in the higher weight, the, the lowest weight, because you know you can't lift very much, and you start working out and doing your thing. And then you come in, the guy says, well, here, and he takes the key out, and he puts the key down the bottom of the stack of weights, and he just takes the weight, that little weight you were lifting, and makes it ten times more. And you say, oh, there's no way I can't lift that. And this guy with the great big bulging arms reaches down, he picks up the bar, and he curls the weight up, and he can lift it no problem. Why? Because every, over time, as he's exercised, 
He started off with a little weight, you started off, and he slowly worked his way up more and more and more. And the way those little muscles grow to great big ones is because he keeps increasing the load and keeps increasing his lifting, and the muscle responds and grows. Here's the same thing. As we read and study Scripture, our view of God becomes so much bigger and we recognize that the faith that He provides is able to lift the loads. It's able to do the work that He calls us to do. So we, we recognize our need of more faith. We pray and ask God for more faith. We're living in obedience to what God's already given us to do. And we read and study and pray to increase and enlarge our view of God so that the greater God is to us, the more our faith grows and increases. Spirit-filled, spirit-given faith is vitally necessary for us to face opposition. By faith in God, Christ endured suffering and the cross and death. By faith in God, Stephen served in the church and preached the word. It's by faith in Christ's promise never to forsake him that he heard to the apostles that Stephen boldly preached the Sanhedrin council and in those closing moments as the heavens were open and he saw the exalted Christ, he had that assurance that no matter what happened, what happened next, Christ would not leave him. I think it's interesting, we'll get there when we get to that chapter next week, as Stephen saw Christ, he saw him standing. And I kind of wonder if there wasn't in that, that rising and standing in, in Stephen's view was the promise that he would be welcomed home, that Christ was rising to meet him in that sense. It was a promise that he would not leave Stephen in the next hour. You read some of the stories of the martyrs. Uh, some of the things that they, even as the, the flames were climbing up and they were being burned at the stake for their faith, often they testified that they were seeing amazing things that God was allowing them to see visions of glory for a moment as they endured those terrible times in the flames. Spirit-given, spirit-filled faith is vitally necessary for us to face opposition. It's vitally necessary so we can respond in Christ-like, godly character and not in the railing and reviling that the flesh so much wants to put out. Thirdly, Last one for today. Godly, Christ-like character requires provision of grace from God. Now you notice in verse 8, godly, uh, it says there, Stephen, full of faith and power. That's in my New King James Bible. But I also have a little textual note, a margin note that says uh, faith, sorry, grace. So my New King James says faith in the main text and has a marginal note that says grace. And the NASB, the ESV, and the CSB, the word for all those translations, I think in the NIV as well, is also grace. So verse 8 is reading, Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So godly Christ-like character requires a provision of God's grace. And we look at Christ and we see in Him that He was full of grace. In John 1 verse 14, John writes, We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1 verse 17, grace was realized. It came through Christ. 
In Luke 4 and verse 22, the witnesses there all bore witness to Jesus and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Jesus was full of grace. To be full of grace is to be Christ-like. He's not talking about a human virtue or a a kind human kind of spirit. He's talking about a a godly thing, full of God's grace. You say, what is grace? And we all know well. Grace is God's kindness, His favor, His goodness to us, goodness to the undeserving. By grace we are saved. It's God's kindness to us to save us. By grace we hear the gospel call to repent and believe. By God's grace and kindness to both the church and the servant, we're given opportunities to serve, to preach, to lead, and so on. By God's grace... Paul laid a gospel foundation in Corinth. By God's grace, Paul made known the mystery of the gospel to the Ephesians. By God's grace to Stephen, he served practically and he preached the word through the enabling power of God's grace given to him. Godly, Christ-like character is only possible through the grace of God. And then 2 Peter 3.18, what are we told? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory now and forever. Amen. We're to grow in grace to the glory of God. We're commanded to grow and we're given grace to grow. We will not grow in godliness without God's grace being given to us. In 2 Peter 1, verse 3, God's divine power was granted, given us all things that have to do with life and godliness. It's His gracious gift to us. In grace, God increases the influence of the Spirit of God in our lives. In grace, God opens the heart and mind to increase our knowledge as we crave the sincere milk of the world. We crave it. Sincere milk of the Word, not the world, the Word, and God gives that to us in grace. In grace, God increases our faith in Him. In grace, God increases our joy in Him. In grace, God increases our fear of the Lord. All those things are God's grace given to us. God, in grace to us, conforms us into the image of Christ. So it's an outflow of God's grace that we grow in godliness. And godliness is impossible without God's grace. It takes the kindness and grace of God to endure suffering. I was thinking about this um, Friday night, just thinking about Paul. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible talks about Paul enduring the thorn in the flesh. It was an opposition from Satan. And Paul pleaded with God for its removal and was told in verse 9 that my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul means God's grace, his sustaining force, enabling him and us to endure the grinding pain and suffering of persecution and opposition. God's grace in the midst of suffering is His face of kindness turned toward us to enable us to endure. 
In Acts 7, verses 55 and 56, Stephen's vision of the exalted Christ was God's grace to him to enable him to endure the horrific pain of being stoned. Listen. As we respond to opposition with godly Christ-like character, it begins with the filling of the Spirit of God, that increasing influence of the Spirit of God in each of us. Godly Christ-like character requires an increase of faith in God, and godly Christ-like character requires a provision of grace from God. And we'll see the one about wisdom next week. I want to go back to that question I asked back at the end of point one about why, how, and how. Why do we want to live godly, Christ-like character? I said earlier, the promise of Scripture is that godliness uh, is profitable for all things. I also said, as Scripture says, that godliness will result in persecution. So, if being able to respond to opposition is the only reason that we want to be godly and Christ-like, that's not enough. But responding to opposition is only one part of a much larger purpose. We want to be godly and Christ-like in character because that glorifies God. Godly, Christ-like character glorifies God by producing living statues of Christ that point others to God. So also, being full of the Spirit glorifies God because it produces God-glorifying behavior. It produces God-glorifying responses, God-glorifying words. Being full of faith also glorifies God as its object. Faith makes its object weighty and glorious. We look we trust in God. And people ask us, what is the reason for the hope that we have within? It's faith in God. Our hope is in God. Our faith is in Him. And that glorifies Him as we identify Him as the object of our faith. We identify Him as the one in whom we're trusting and relying on to get through this life. Why is it that we can endure opposition and suffering where others crumble and fail? Or respond in violent angry words. We can do it because our object is to glorify God. We can do it because of the Spirit of God in us so that we glorify God as we do it, right? Being full of grace glorifies God, its provider, and people can see around us. How can she possibly respond that way? Anybody else would have just sworn their head off or maybe swung a fist or a punch. But she responded in quietness. Again, I go back to that scene where uh, Stephen is on the ground, I believe. And they're standing over him with large, heavy rocks. And they're about to throw them down at him. It's going to break bones. It's going to crush. It's going to cause hemorrhaging and massive blood loss. Probably before he died, he would have endured unbearable pain. And yet he cries out, hold this not to their account. How is it that Jesus is being stretched out on the cross and they're taking his hands and putting him down the cross and driving a nail through the base of his wrist right to that nerve center, right at the bottom where all those lines crossed your wrist there? How is it he can say, Father, forgive them? That's only because of the grace of God. It's only because of the spirit filling that they have. It's only because their hope, their trust is in God who will carry them through it. How is it even possible 
that we can live a godly, Christ-like character. What's the grounds of our living this life that pleases God? It's Christ in His life and death and resurrection who reconciled us to God. It's being reconciled to God. We're filled with His Spirit. Living that Christ-like life is only possible because Jesus died for you and me and rose again. Without that, it's all religious. Without that, it's all works of the flesh. It's because Christ died that we can live this godly life, godly life in Christ-like character. How is it? What is the means by which we ourselves pursue that Christ-like godly life? It's faith and obedience by prayer and Scripture. It's trusting in God. We cry out to God for the filling of the Spirit. We cry out to God for the increase of faith. We cry out to God in prayer for more grace to live this life and do this ministry. It's, It's faith that cries out in prayer. It's obedience to what we see in Scripture. Yeah, we cry out to God for the increase of the Holy Spirit. And then we submit ourselves to what the Spirit of God teaches us. Because His influence doesn't have an influence if we're not obeying what we see. I heard about this lady. I don't know who she was. It was just a story I heard. I think R.C. Sproul told it. And he said that she called him up in the middle of the night and she said uh, she really felt that she should leave her husband and go with some other guy that she was in love with. And she'd been praying about that. And R.C. Sproul just kind of shook his head. He couldn't believe the question, the comment that was made. How can you possibly pray and ask for God's blessing to disobey what Scripture teaches you? You can't do it. It doesn't work. But how many times do we pray and ask for God's Spirit to lead us and guide us in the things that we know the Scripture specifically says you shouldn't do? So it's prayer and obedience. It's faith and obedience. It's faith and prayer and Scripture soaked into our lives that the Spirit of God might teach us His world, might teach us about Christ so that we can look more like Christ. How is it that Stephen stood against the opposition It was a godly life that was developed over years. We only see in chapter 6 and 7 the very end of that life when he he had a good reputation and was chosen to serve. When he went out and he preached and taught the gospel in the synagogue of the freemen. We'll look at that next week. As they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit. But it wasn't just the wisdom and the words that he spoke. It was a godly character that he lived. Did you notice all the full of I often joke about being a you know, full gospel preacher because I'm full in other ways. But he was a man full of faith, a man full of the Spirit, a man full of wisdom, a man full of grace, and a man full of power. It's no mistake that those fools are all in there. He was a man who had worked for years in cooperation with the Spirit of God to develop and produce a godly, Christ-like life. Brothers and sisters, I'm not calling you to be like Stephen in the sense of just imitating Stephen. I'm calling us all to imitate Stephen's love for God, to imitate Stephen's character, Christ-like character, to be like Jesus Christ. May God help us to do it. Let's pray. Loving Father, we just give you thanks and we praise you again, O God, for our Savior. Father, we thank you and we praise you for 
the Lord Jesus Christ as He set the perfect example for how we should live and how we should respond in the face of opposition. Father, we thank You for what You have told us in Your Word, Your Spirit-inspired Word about Jesus. He was full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. Father, we thank You and we praise You that He was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. We thank You that He was the God-man of prayer and the God-man of faith. And Father, we thank You that He was full of grace. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And Lord, we thank You also for the witness, the, the Bible stories about men like Stephen and Daniel and Joseph and so many others that displayed godly, Christ-like character to those around them. And Father, we ask You that You would increase our faith. Increase the influence of the Spirit of God in us as we study and, and read the Scriptures to understand who Jesus was and to be like Him. To know Him more. To know You more as we know Him more. Father, we cry out to You for more grace. Grace to minister Grace to live the lives that you've called each of us to live. Grace as we face opposition, that our opposition might be a testimony for the grace of God that we have experienced in our faith in God. Father, we long to finish well the way that Stephen finished well, the way that Paul finished well, the way that Mark even finished the race well. Father, we ask you for help. We give thanks again, O oh God, for this time together in worship. And Lord, too, as we would close, we just want us to take time to stop and think about some dear loved ones amongst us. And Lord, there are some that are grieving the loss of family members. And Father, we ask you for them, that you would strengthen them and comfort them by your grace. Father, we think, too, of those who are struggling with sickness and illness, and we pray, O oh God, for them, that you'd increase their faith. Father, use this sickness that they are enduring for your purposes to make them more like Christ, to increase their faith, to give more grace, to give more of the Spirit's influence that they might respond in peace and patience and joy. Father, help us all to be more like Jesus. Lord, too, for our missionaries that we support in far-off fields, Lord, we cry out to you on their behalf that you would provide them what they need for the journey. Father, for the emotional strength they need, for the spiritual strength they need. Lord, for the physical needs that they have, whether it's finances or physical, other physical issues. Lord, we just ask you for them, that you would meet their need. Father, too, just thinking about the family of Dave Wood and, and Lord... Our hearts are saddened to know that they've endured such a loss. But Father, we rejoice that he is home in glory. Father, too, for Helen's mom, the same. We just give thanks, O oh God, for your grace and your kindness to us all. Father, we thank you again for this time of worship. And we seek your blessing as we would close now. In Jesus' name, amen.